This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, I speak with Claire Maxwell about school internationalization. Together with Laura Engel and Miri Yemeni, Claire has recently co-edited a new book entitled The Machinery of School Internationalization in Action, Beyond the Established Boundaries. And there's so many, at the moment, there's really exciting scholarship that would sort of take one side and others would take the other. And I think that's, in a way, what we also tried to do with this book was bring together a broad group of scholars that would enable us to start having conversations across different fields of scholarship. And that was also one of the reasons why we brought in sort of academics and practitioner academics as well, because I think sometimes the conversations about these issues become quite siloed to some extent where people publish and where, you know, a theory that they draw on. And so it's really important actually to have that debate a little bit more. In our conversation, we discuss internationalization in terms of elite education, privatization, and even racism. We also discuss the implications of the coronavirus on internationalization. There's a lot of issues there which perhaps because there is this one group that have been affected so much by COVID-19, i.e. the international mobile student, that maybe their position in these institutions will need to be looked at more critically in terms of what are we actually doing for these students rather than just what are the students doing for us, which is paying high fees to be educated in the North. Claire Maxwell is a professor of sociology at the University of Copenhagen. Her current work focuses on the family and working lives of globally mobile professionals, understanding identity and desires around mobility and education strategies. She also looks at how notions of elite education are being articulated, experienced, and renegotiated across different cities across the world. Claire Maxwell, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you for having me, Will. So can you give me a sense of when sort of education very broadly experienced this so-called global turn? Well, I guess it depends on how you define what the global turn is. Um, so there's many many parts that constitute what we might call the global turn. Some of these include um, an increasing commitment to a more cosmopolitan orientation within the curriculum, uh, rather than one that's solely focused on local or national issues and scope. Um, There's been um, quite a while, there's been an increasing interest in international credentials as part of the schooling process and gaining these international credentials. For quite a while, there's also been increasing mobility for the purposes of education, certainly at higher education level, but increasingly now also for schooling and particularly secondary schooling. And there's also been the increasing influence of international and supranational organizations in the governance and direction forming of of education and the purpose of education, the kinds of credentials and the kinds of values that should be espoused through education programs. So one could probably trace different moments in time when the so-called global turn came about. Um, But I would say that broadly, I would say these influences started to really gain traction at the turn of the 21st century. And is there a particular sector in education that is, you know, more likely to have these sort of, you know, global elements, so to speak, uh, operating, you know, through it? I think that's a really interesting and actually quite important question. I would say initially that's been the the purview of um, more elite institutions, people with higher levels of resources, the internationally mobile that have for quite a while now. Um, had this sort of global orientation uh, or certainly um, been looking to to have global 
elements integrated into their curriculum in some way or other. It has become a sort of selling point or some sort of signal of um, a good education, an institution at the forefront of innovation. But what's interesting about the book that, that we edited is that, in fact, what you find is that internationalization has crept through and seeped into institutions and into social groups across the board. And I think that's what's really important about internationalization now is not to see it only as something that happens in the most resource groups, in the elite institutions, but is actually something that people almost everywhere are grappling with and trying to make sense of and and feeling like it's something important and interpreting it and implementing it in quite various ways. And, and that's what's exciting about what's happening now, as opposed to when did the global turn first take hold? So what does it actually look like then, you know, in some of these so-called non-elite institutions or, you know, secondary schools rather than, than higher education? So I think it looks different in different places and it looks different in places near to each other and then similar in places quite far away from each other. So obviously the International Baccalaureate is, is a key example of what internationalization looks like and can be found in very in very different places all around the world. Another very important um, form of internationalization is the global citizenship education, which again has really been taken on as a sort of trope that so many now talk about, but again is very differentially engaged with and understood. So those are two examples. Another example would be a bilingual curricula, uh, which is increasingly being seen as important the mobility of students and also members of staff so that you have the mobility of students coming in from elsewhere to be educated in schools. And they're a huge source of, of business income for many parts of the world um, and are actively sought after uh, by many institutions, especially in the so-called global north. Um, but then there's also the mobility of, stu of teachers. And so even schools that aren't international per se also, there's a cachet in, in saying that you have international members of staff. So one example I'll give you that uh, Pierre Ailing's written a very interesting book about how Nigerian elite parents wish to educate their children. In the case that she looked at, this was uh, parents sending their children abroad to England and to the States to be educated in traditional elite um, institutions. But she also found that Nigerian schools back in Nigeria, if they wanted to sort of elevate themselves to elite status, needed to have teachers who were British or had been trained in the UK. So there's various ways in which this international credentialism um, is used to signal value. And it seems like there's an element of colonialism that's still present in there. If these elite institutions in the UK or maybe even in America are the ones signaling to others that this is, in fact, an elite institution back in, say, Nigeria, I mean, that just seems like there's still a clear power dynamic happening between between countries, between schools, between systems, which is strange because perhaps, you know, cosmopolitanism is, is somehow supposed to be a way of equalizing power relations. I agree. And for the main, I would agree with that. In fact, I wrote a book that came out in 2018. Well, I edited a book that came out in 2018 that um, explored that point. And I think that would be generally how you could understand what's happening today. 
But I think what's also interesting is that there's also ways in which um, sort of that neo-colonial uh, dynamic is being challenged. So um, Howard Prosser uh, wrote a fantastic chapter in this 2018 book that I wrote on internationalization and elite education, where he questioned the Ecuadorian government's desire to expand and make available the International Baccalaureate to all young Ecuadorian uh, pupils as a sort of an anti-colonial endeavor, i.e. you make something that has great value internationally available to all. And in that way, you kind of disrupt the power dynamic. But then you ha- you would have scholars like Julia Resnick, for instance, who would argue, well, the IB, it's a Western concept. It's owned and managed by a company, by an organization that's based in the North. You know, it's still a colonial endeavor, despite it really kind of being widely, widely spread and taken up in Latin America. So I think there's lots of questions that don't necessarily have a, a clear answer on that. And I think um, the, the other way in which it's being, there is some resistance. And I think that's what our book that I edited with Miri and Laura is really about, is to question and open up that. Because I think overall, there is a sense of colonialism still being kind of driven through these processes of internationalization. But there's also resistance to that. And I think now we're at a point in scholarship where we really have to explore and understand those, understand those and try and theorize whether or not they are colonial um, sort of influences or not, and how we could take what what is on the surface potentially something that is continues to emphasize sort of north-south power relations, but can be used in a more kind of uh, disruptive way by groups of parents, by schools, by governments in the global south to, to sort of challenge that dynamic. Mm, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon because it seems like there's this notion of internationalization that has become, I guess, hegemonic in a way, and that, um, you know, it's it's these elite interests and, and terminologies that are now sort of trickling down to non-elite institutions. And so there's pressure to use the terms and and the curriculum that comes with it or whatever it is, but then still try and undermine the very hegemonic nature of the idea itself. I mean, that's a I really like that idea. And I think of people like Michael Burroway, who has done a lot of ethnographies about um, sort of global capitalism and how peasants can sort of undermine the interests of global capitalism, even while working within it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think so, you know, and there's so many at the moment, there's really exciting scholarship that would sort of take one side and others would take the other. And I think that's in a way what we also tried to do with this book was bring together a broad group of scholars that would enable us to start having conversations across different fields of scholarship. And that was also one of the reasons why we brought in sort of academics and practitioner academics as well, because I think sometimes the conversations about these issues become quite siloed to some extent where people publish and where, you know, a theory that they draw on. And so it's really important actually to have that debate a little bit more rather than just accepted as a hegemonic force that can't be challenged. So can you give some examples of maybe, you know, what might be considered contradictions between, you know, between what what maybe some academics are thinking and what some practitioners are thinking and, and, you know, the way in which internationalization looks like in everyday practice? You know, what what are some of these contradictions that we can think about? 
So I think um, one example is, um, so Laura Engel did a chapter with Heidi Gibson on how internationalization was being done quite differently in different parts of the states. And the United States is, of course, a really interesting context to look at because it's so large and education is run at a federal level and sometimes even at a local level. And the examples that Laura and Heidi looked at in relation to internationalization actually tend to suggest that the internationalization is being used very much to try and um, reduce the gaps in inequality that are so prominent in the US educational landscape. Whether or not they're successful or not in doing that is perhaps another question, and I don't think we have all the data that we need to, to make that evaluation. But for instance, in North Carolina, the, they've brought in the International Baccalaureate into impoverished schools as a way of sort of bringing up the level of education, increasing the aspirations of those communities. Of course, one of the challenges in that is that these communities are often thinking, well, you know, we need to keep people in our communities to rebuild them because they're impoverished. And is the IB going to make all our young people think that they need to flee and find and go elsewhere? So these are some of the sort of problematics of internationalization that need to be sort of debated and thought through. Another example is, is where you try to introduce the international baccalaureate into public schools in the States as a way of trying to, you know, stop the fleeing of middle class families um, from public local schools into other kinds of schools as it carries that sort of valuable credential. So I think these are interesting examples of how there is a potential to disrupt dynamics of inequality by using this idea of internationalization and the imperative of internationalization, which is all, all consuming, but in a way sort of interpreting it locally so that it has some potential value to local groups who aren't being, you know, educated for international futures. And, and, you know, if I think about these examples and compare them to some work that I'm doing with Adam Howard on sort of elite schools in different parts of the global south, who are absolutely, have absolutely bought into this idea of a global orientation, internationalization, but even they are using it in very different ways. In some cases, they're doing it to send them out to, you know, to become part of a so-called transnational capitalist class. In other cases, they're doing it because they feel in order to make these young people potential leaders in their in their nations, in their regions, they need to have these international credentials and experiences in order to be able to sort of lead. Yeah, right. And does this ever come in conflict with the purpose of nation building? You know, where the idea of schooling is to socialize youth into being future citizens of a nation state, whereas, you know, internationalization, it seems like part of one of the goals is to sort of create this cosmopolitan, maybe transnational capitalist class that sort of sees beyond the nation state. So it might be a bit tricky, I would imagine, at times. Well, I think it's hard to answer that question. I'll tell you why, because at the one hand, you can see that on a theoretical level that you can see there's a dilemma or a tension. You can also see at a political discursive level that it's it's absolutely seen as a tension, um, especially in times now where you know people often argue we have this surge of populism and nationalism. But in fact, I think what, how many educational institutions and, and families are seeing it is not that there's a conflict. And it's really about understanding that we're now really in this interconnected world. And even if we're actually trying to nation build and support economic development of local areas and nations, 
To do that, we need young people who understand how to operate in a more global, in a more cosmopolitan space. And not often talked about and not often really acknowledged in the way in which internationalization is now being interpreted and implemented in, in schools is, of course, this idea where internationalization and cosmopolitan started off is that actually it's about intercultural understanding and sort of human, more humanitarian kind of values behind it. And that does often sort of slip off, slip off the agenda. But, but actually, you know, I think in that sense, you can kind of um, bring together these what seem to be conflicting ideals and values and actually integrate them the more. I think just one other example of the way in which it's could be seen as attention, but I don't actually think in practice it becomes attention, is that often these very international kind of ways of interpreting curricula and outlooks is also something that more and more parents, really no matter what social grouping they come from, they kind of expect it. And they want their children to be exposed to that. They think it's important, whether or not they believe their children to become globally mobile or join a transnational capitalist class. So in, in that sense, it's also something very equalizing because there seems to be more and more of an understanding that the international is key. And why shouldn't all young people have the opportunity to learn in that kind of space and, and be prepared to think globally? And what about sort of privatization of education or the business interests that, you know, obviously are present in internationalization. You know, the IB is obviously a, I think it's a for-profit company, if that's correct. So they have a particular interest in mind, um, not simply advancing the these nice ideas of internationalization. Or, for instance, I think you said earlier, you know, many universities and even many schools now are relying on international students as a, as a main revenue stream. So, you know, can you talk a little bit about these dynamics of what perhaps we could call privatization or the business interests that um, are present in internationalization? Yeah, well, you've hit the nail on the head there, Will, in terms of something that we have to be very cautious about and very critical about. And of course, there are many, you know, wonderful scholars who write specifically about that and really examine that. And I think it is the sort of dark side of internationalization, no doubt. I think, you know, if we think about higher education for a moment, I think this current moment of the coronavirus is very interesting. I have a, a wonderful colleague, Rebecca Yee, who's um, at Stockholm University, but currently doing a fellowship in Singapore. And she's just writing a very short piece on the responsibilities for international students who now have had to leave, in the most part, the US, the UK, where they have been studying and propping up universities financially because now they can't stay there. And whose responsibility is it to repatriate them, for want of a better word? And I think these are questions that I've also asked myself, you know, working in higher education institutions with high numbers of international students, what responsibility do we really have to them to prepare them for employment in the future, to support their emotional well-being? Um, and I think these are not questions that are perhaps engaged with enough by institutions at the moment. In terms of other private interests, it is very difficult, as you say, for institutions that are so reliant on some of the technologies that are being you know, sold by some of these internet in these private companies, um, the pressure to offer the international baccalaureate when it is a very expensive undertaking, the idea that these private entities are experts in education and could solve 
problems of inefficiencies, it's a very kind of, um, they're very susceptible, I think, and often to, to some of these promises and investing in these things. So I think that's why it's so important that we continue to unpick what is happening around internationalization at various levels. What are some of the advantages of internationalization? What are still some of the things we have to be cautious about? And, and engaging policymakers and practitioners who are actually the ones that are moving internationalization forward to be able to more critically analyze that. And I think that's why some of the chapters that you find in the book that we've edited hope to try and unpack that a little bit to show where there is agency to actually use internationalization for the well-being and the sake of the educational institution or the, or the students that should benefit from it. But it's certainly very challenging and there's so many influences at play here that it's not always we're not always able to see through the the sort of myriad of of things going on. I want to return to coronavirus or COVID-19 because it it does seem like this this crisis is transformative in perhaps the way we even think about internationalization. And, and so, I, you know, I, maybe it's a bit too early to know fully and, and assess what is happening. But what do we know about what's happening to not only universities, but, but other school systems because of COVID-19? Like, you know, it, how is it beginning to challenge ways of thinking about internationalization? Well, I mean, as, a, as the first example, because as you say, it is still very early, is the repatriation of international students, be they young people still in compulsory schooling or university students. Um, and the sort of dislocation that they must feel from, you know, one minute being one place and the next minute being some other place and a sense of when will they be able to return. And I think what's also um, what, what COVID-19 has also done is brought up this really sticky issue, which, again, I don't think is often written about quite so much, although we do see there's a wonderful article by Joanna Fahi and Jane Kenway on a British elite school that um, has a lot of young, um, it's a a girls only elite school that has a lot of young women from East Asia as students there. And they write very eloquently about the kind of uh, insipid racism that these young women experience. And you see that everywhere else in terms of student mobility and the way in which these groups of young people are understood as students and as individuals. There's an interesting um, chapter in the book that we edited that we're talking about today by um, an Australian academic who talks about an Australian school that has a large number of international students coming to it. And she's a sort of practitioner scholar, and she's trying to understand how they're developing what they call a pedagogy of internationalization and tries to show the ways in which the school is is able to um, conceptualize it and develop it as a way of thinking, well, actually, we just these students, we can't just teach these students as any as any Australian students. These these students have different needs and we actually need to adapt, you know, all the way from how do we teach English literature, for instance. And so it's this level of detail which we often um, don't find much written about in academic sources. Um, and also, I know that institutions, both at the schooling level and the higher education level, are, are grappling with, and I'm not convinced are coming up with enough um, innovative solutions and, and ways of, of practicing to move forward. So I think there's a lot of issues there, which perhaps because there is this one group that have been affected so much by COVID-19, i.e. the international mobile student, that maybe their position in these institutions will need to be looked at more critically in terms of what are we actually doing for these students rather than just what are the students doing for us, which is 
paying high fees to be educated in the north. Yeah, you brought up that issue of racism and, and the university where, where I currently am, where you, you used to be. There was a story a couple weeks ago about a student from Singapore who was assaulted uh, on the streets of London because, you know, the, the people who assaulted him thought he was Chinese and had the virus and was spreading, you know, COVID-19. And, um, and so there's this level of racism that, you know, is obviously present for when people move all over the world. And, you know, it's interesting, the university did respond, but, you know, did it respond well? Did it meet the student's needs? You know, how are they caring for the student now that he's back uh, in Singapore? You know, these are all good questions. You know, how much responsibility do these institutions have once the student is not is no longer a student or is a student but at a distance? Um, I mean, these are really difficult questions that I, I, you know, I don't really just even practically I don't know the answer to. Absolutely. And I think it's interesting now because, as you said, Will, I used to be at UCL and I'm now at the University of Copenhagen and I'm actually struck by how few international students we do have in on our programs. Um, so it's, it's such a different context in terms of the constitution of students, um, student groups. And it's a, an interesting question about whether or not countries that have perhaps been more careful about the student intake and have been less about, you know, the sort of financial rewards that international student mobility brings, as um, the Anglophone universities have relied on for much longer periods of time, whether or not they're going to open up the offer to more international students, but also what the impact of that will be in a context where they're just not used to having a real mix of students. So I think that's a, that's perhaps a very important question that um, that the international East higher education um, space needs to think about a bit more. What, what lessons can we learn and what kind of responsibilities do we have to encourage student mobility? Because, of course, since the beginning of what was a university, you know, mobility has been critical, at least for staff, but also increasingly for students. There's a really interesting chapter on that matter by uh, Roland Bloch and colleagues, uh, some German colleagues from the University of Halle in a book that I edited in 2018 on, on internationalization. And it's really, you know, it's fundamental to the purpose of the university to encourage mobility. But with that, as you say, come responsibilities, not just when they're with us as it, at the institution, but also beyond, I think. And I'm, I'm not sure that universities have really tackled that yet. Well, Claire Maxwell, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. It really was a pleasure of talking and I look forward to, I don't know, reading more of your work, maybe bringing in issues of coronavirus as it unfolds over the coming months and years. Thank you for having me, Will. Claire Maxwell is a professor at the University of Copenhagen. Her latest co-edited book with Laura Engel and Mir Yemeni is entitled The Machinery of School Internationalization in Action. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, Lushik Waba, Fatih Akhtas, and In Jung Cho. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, and listeners like you. Please consider becoming a monthly sponsor of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. All U.S.-based donations are tax deductible. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem. 
and I'll be back next week.